0: This is Allison Janney.
1: This is Matt Balmer. This
0: is Donna Murphy.
1: This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts Podcast with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK.
0: Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a liar and friends with some revelations. Little known fact of the day, every little thing's gonna be a-okay. A-okay. Hey, everyone. New episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday, and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind the scenes photos, videos and interviews and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today, she's the only actress to have performed as both mother and daughter in the same show, just a few years apart. Welcome my guest today, Judy Kuhn. A-OK. okay My dear friend, Judy Kuhn, here today, her accolades would fill a really... Largely bound <laughs> leather book, but I'll just start with some That's of the sure highlights. I know I am. I'm, I'm, I googled it, <laughs> and it actually shows a big leather bound book. <laughs> I would imagine almost everyone listening today knows Judy from Les Miz and Sunset Boulevard and chess and she loves me and rags and passion and fun home. She is a really big deal in my house because of course she's the singing voice of Pocahontas. <laughs> my favorite thing about uh, the song Colors of the Wind, that's the song we're talking about, which by the way, her her song won an Academy Award. So do you do you get do you get an Academy Award when you're the singer? a song that wins uh, no, an Oscar?
1: but I did get thanked. So that's the closest i probably ever get to the Academy of Awards.
0: That's nice, because if you think about it, thank you, you can take everywhere. Right. A big award, it's so <laughs> clunky, and you'd have to walk around with it all the time. True. So this is easier. My favorite thing about that song, to be perfectly honest, is when you really listen to the lyrics, and I know them really well, I don't know what a lot of it means.
1: It's sort of magical.
0: <laughs> it's magical language. Do you remember the lyrics
1: to this song? Of course I do. I've sung it about 10,000 times. So just see the beginning of it. It's funny that you should say that because it was the 20th anniversary of the opening of Pocahontas this past summer. Wow. And so, and this was in the middle of all the Fun Home Award madness. Mm -hmm. And so, I guess it was Entertainment Weekly asked me to do some. Kind of reimagining of the song. And Janine Tessori, who wrote the music for Fun Home, and I got together and we basically improvised Colors of the Wind. Do you talk in... about
0: the blue corn moon? And what... I'd like to know yes, what that wait is. Wait a minute, I'm okay. getting
1: there. Oh, sorry. And we, and we improvised a version of it that was in many different styles. And EW sent me a list of questions and asked me to choose two or three to answer okay. about the song. And one of them was What is a blue corn moon? And why does the wolf cry to it? I
0: want to know.
1: And I answered, I have no idea what a blue corn moon is. And I've never heard a wolf cry because I live in New York City. Right. And that went viral. And they got back to Stephen Schwartz, who admitted that he made that up.
0: You're now part of the fabric of the Disney legacy. And that's That's a pretty big deal.
1: It is a big deal. I mean – You know, especially since mostly what I do is theater, and Mm -hmm. that's very temporary art form. And it's here today and gone tomorrow. And, of course, Pocahontas will be around forever.
0: You have such vocal versatility and style. I wonder a lot when performers who have the voices of angels like you do, when did you know Was there a moment, (laughs) did someone else point out to you like, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is an unusual singer you have here, Mr. and Mrs. Kuhn. um, What happened? How was this revealed to you?
1: I I, I don't know that it was revealed to me. I just always liked to sing. You know, I was a junior hippie and I sang with my guitar and my best friend and I growing up would sing folk songs together in harmony. She claims that people used to say, her name's Robin, Robin, be quiet, let Judy sing. But I think that that is absolutely not true because Robin has a great voice too. But we sang together and, you know, at camp and then I did some musicals in high school and... I don't know. People just seemed to respond favorably when I sang, but I never you, you didn't really understand that you thought, could go, wow, I'm good at this. You or, didn't?
0: You didn't? I mean, no. because you didn't grow up going to church. A lot of people grew up and it was in church that they right. found, like Kristen Chenoweth, you know, suddenly at five was able to kind of take over the right. entire church and people would freak out. And, and it was obvious to the masses that right. there was a very
1: special thing happening in this person. You weren't Baptist. So there were moments when I was sort of chosen to sing in a solo sort of way or I was given the lead in a musical at school. So it was definitely, you know, I was aware that I, was, I got approval for so my singing.
0: I always wonder, at what age is your voice your voice, a mature voice. Is there a moment where a voice becomes a mature voice, and you can well, start working with they, it as an I instrument? I think they
1: say that vo- the lower the voice, the longer it takes to come to full maturity. And I also know that, like, uh, kids shouldn't take technique voice lessons. Like, people always ask me about their kids: who would you, who, what voice teacher should they go to? And, and I always say, have them study. Get you know. Music, get musically proficient, play an instrument, take a class in, you know, theater or I don't know. You can teach them to breathe and think about the texts and stuff like that. But vocal technique should not be taught to children because they're just their voices are too immature. So
0: at what age approximately? I think
1: not before you're 18. Uh I never took a voice lesson until I was 18.
0: All right. So it was all freestyle.
1: And And I have to say, when I got to Oberlin, I went to Oberlin for college and I was in the college when I got there. And one of the first things I did was audition for the Oberlin Chorus. The Oberlin, well, I guess it was, yeah, the Oberlin College Choir, it was called, which was a pretty prominent um, undergraduate choir. It used to tour some and I didn't get in. You didn't? I did not.
0: That's fantastic. <laughs> there are people scratching their heads to this day. I hope everyone uh, has been fired from Oberlin. Um When you graduated, did you pursue performing right away?
1: No, I didn't. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, I think I, you know, I grew up with my father was a civil rights lawyer and he was, is a righteous man. And I always felt like I needed to do something that would change the world somehow. Right. And um, so I always resisted the idea of being an actor. It
0: felt frivolous somehow compared to what he was doing. And
1: my father gave me the best advice at that time that he could have given me, which was you have to pursue what you care about, what you're passionate about, what you're good at. And the guilt that you feel (laughs) is good because it'll make you you know, continue to contribute to the world in whatever way you can.
0: So when you were growing up with a father who was a a civil rights lawyer, what kind of activism was happening in your house? I mean, you're you're political and brave as an actor. You often come out with a stand and a a point of view and you're not afraid of ruffling any feathers as a public person. Did you go to rallies growing up? Oh, there up was lots was...
1: of activism in my house. Okay, I mean, so you know, it was the 60s that, in right? Washington. So
0: you're in the thick of it.
1: Yeah, and we went to anti-war marches and civil rights marches, and my dad was involved in, you know, a, a big um push to integrate schools so there would be meetings at my house and we'd stuff envelopes right. and you know, this was pre email, of course, so you had to mail things that right. you wanted people to know about. So you were licking that disgusting um, glue and getting Exactly. So it was exciting. You know, I felt important. I felt very scared when I went to college. I don't know. I felt what I do you mean? I felt like a I was always afraid of being rejected, so I was afraid to go I mean, it didn't start out well with being rejected yeah, from the chorus. You were right to be afraid, because you
0: were. And then, right. but
1: then I did transfer into the, after a year. I tra- transferred into the conservatory of music, and I did audition and got in that time. But um, and then I, I don't know. I was shy about auditioning for theater. I'm not really, I, you know, I'm not really sure why exactly. Um, Although I did do some theater while I was there. But I felt very engaged in the musical life there Uh and got great voice training. For
0: listeners just joining us, Judy Keene was in the original (laughs) American production of Les Mis. Yes. Which you probably can't – I can't think of a bigger, more internationally famous show to be a part of. Um, And Trevor Nunn was the director. Mm-hmm. So With John
1: Caird. They were co-directors. And Lee story
0: <laughs> started in London...
1: It started at the RSC in London. So when you joined the cast, mm-hmm. you were in the
0: original
1: American. Broadway. And
0: you were Cosette in the original? I was
1: Cosette in the original. So <laughs>
0: unbelievable. So <laughs> unbelievable. So was that um, a hard and intense process to get that show? Was it sort of effortless? Do you remember? Oh,
1: I remember it in great detail. Because I, I was at the time when they started holding auditions for it, I was doing was a show called Rags in Boston.
0: Wait, so Rags was in Boston before it came to New York? Yes. That had a very sort of notorious uh, story connected to it because it closed very quickly in New York. Is that right? Yes. Like after how many shows?
1: I don't know. All I remember is I was in my tiny little apartment in Chelsea, cleaning my apartment for the first time in what seemed like many, many weeks. and Because uh, of the rig-
0: rigorous rehearsal process, yes. not because you're not a <laughs> no, clean <exactly>. person, <laughs> uh, just so people um, understand. So I was
1: vacuuming, and I also was very naive at that time and thought it was really cool to read reviews and watch TV <laughs> reviews. And I had the news on, and I was vacuuming, and I saw the Rags logo go up on the TV and thought... Oh, a review. So I turned off the vacuum, turned up the volume of the TV, and the person on the TV was who was looking at me said, um, Rags, which opened last night at the Imperial Theater, will close tomorrow. Oh, no, at the Mark Hellinger's Theater, will close tomorrow after four performances. The producers decided to send out a press release before informing the cast, which wasn't very That's thoughtful. That's horrible. But it's horrible. It did enable me to... It was it made me available for Les Mis. And what, what I was going to say was that when we were in Boston doing rags, several of us went down to do a, a first audition for Les Mis and for the casting directors, not yet for the directors. Then I was called back... And my memory of my first callback was walking into the room and Trevor Nunn jumping to his feet and running over to me and putting his arm around me and saying, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for coming and thinking, oh, my God, he thinks I'm somebody else. I have never met this man. And then I found out that that's just what he did. You got it. Right, exactly.
0: And that must have been a tremendously exciting, it was very exciting moment.
1: It was very exciting.
0: It's such a, an amazing thing to be friends with someone who can perform as magnificently as you can. No, and to, to really sweet. see, knowing you as well as I do, how different you are in the characters that you play. And obviously, I almost missed my own cue at my own wedding because Judy sang me down the aisle. She sang At Last, the the kind of well known Edda James song and she did her own version of it that was so beautiful that I was standing sort of I'm gonna say off stage, but it wasn't a play. It was actually my wedding. I was sort of standing around the corner with my mom and dad and I started to hear Judy sing at last and I just started to listen. And I thought, wow, that sounds so amazing. That's so beautiful. <laughs> Until like the maitre d' at the wedding. I was like, you need to start walking down the aisle now. So there was that. I don't know if you know this, but I found the strangest thing. There is a website devoted
1: to your feet.
0: What? It's true. Instead of Wikipedia, what? it's called Wiki Feet. Wait, not your, just
1: my feet. Like well, uh, lots there, of people's feet. There like, are other what? celebrities other celebrity feet.
0: But I thought, this is like, how do you know you've made it?
1: How can you verify that they're my feet?
0: I can only verify that in the photo, the feet are attached to the legs. They're attached to your body. <laughs> and I even think I recognize the jeans. But no one in any way mocked them up to be some bizarre right. other than they are. Anyway, I want to talk about Fun Home. I would imagine that part of the satisfaction in being a part of a play like this is that there's the literal kind of presentation of this story. And then my guess is, and I only bring this up because I did a play called My Name is Asher Lev, which was very specifically I about saw, a Hasidic. And you were brilliant in. Thank you. Um, A a very intimate story about a son growing up in a Hasidic family who's an artist, and there's just no place to be an artist in that world. And he ends up having to choose between being an artist and remaining a part of his family. But what always blew my mind after doing that play is how many people would come up to me and talk about how the play had been, the, the, the book was so seminal for them because they had grown up in many circumstances gay in a family that wasn't accepting of being gay, and that it worked Mm -hmm. as a metaphor. And so I wondered in Fun Home, which is very specifically um, for listeners who don't know it, maybe, Judy, do you mind giving them a little synopsis of the story?
1: It's based on a graphic memoir by Alison Bechtel, who grew up in a small Pennsylvania town with her parents and her two brothers, and also was an artist. And her parents were artists as well, but sort of trapped in this very kind of small, somewhat conservative town. They were. The, it's, he was the town undertaker, thus the name Fun Home, because they ran the funeral home. But they were also a family full of secrets. And when Alison um, went to college, she sort of came to terms with her sexuality, and she came out to her family as a lesbian. And then her mother told her that her father was gay. And then th- four months later, he killed himself. We have the ver- a very similar reaction from our audiences, uh, a lot of sobbing, although it's very funny, I should add. This show is very funny, very human, but it does deliver a punch. At the
0: center of all of these family stories is there's a secret. Yes. I mean, I wonder, I feel like well, I walk everybody... out going, what's my family's secret? Right. Well, what, it's what not necessarily
1: a... even a secret. It's just that, you know, your family are the people that you Know the best, and in some ways, know the least. You right. know, there's, you know, your parent. You know, your I think parents. Your parents are always a little bit of a mystery to you, and I think your children are always a little bit of a mystery to you. Allison wrote the book, um, and and the play starts with Allison, adult Allison, at the age at which her father killed himself. So she's asking the okay. question: Is as, as you got to this age where you could not go on anymore? you could not you could not live the life that you were meant to live and you couldn't go on anymore i'm now trying to live the life i think i was meant to live how is it that i am going on and you couldn't go on it resonates so deeply
0: um, it's very hard to shake it the way it really 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 allows everyone to be a hero
1: you know i think all kids i've identify with this story gay straight or otherwise because so much of it is about coming understanding your own identity coming to terms with it and then living it authentically, whatever that means, whether it means being an artist or an athlete or being a lesbian or being a uh, whatever, whatever it is. And, and you know, anybody who's in their teens and their 20s and 30s is going through that thing.
0: I wanted to ask you, do you still audition in your career at this point for things?
1: Yes. I'll tell you about one of the most humiliating. Great. We love them really humiliating. Uh, I, when I was First in New York, I didn't have an agent. I was sort of going to open calls, and I went to an audition for something I think at Playwrights Horizons, and I didn't get the job. But the casting director liked me, and he happened to be the 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 casting director also for Sunday in the Park with George, which was at that time on Broadway, having started at Playwrights and transferred to commercial production, and they were doing um, a. Sort of call, general call for replacements in that production because it had been—I guess it had been on Broadway for a little bit and people were leaving—and he asked me to come in and you know bring my up-tempo ballad, whatever. So I—we just want I showed up. (laughs) I waited my turn. I I walked on the stage. I had never stood on a Broadway stage before, so that was in itself uh, intimidating. I looked out and not only were the, ca- you know, casting directors, producers, everybody, but Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine. So they said, what are you going to sing for us? And I said uh, some song. Do you think you spoke in English at I that did point? speak in English. I just, I named a song that mm-hmm. I think I had in mind to do that was, I, it must have been a soprano song because I knew they were looking for people who could sing high And Sondheim said from his seat, what else do you have? And I said, I named another song. He said, what else? And I named another song. And he said, sort of sighed, oh, just sing. And he named one of the songs. So I was already, like, already had brought terrible selections. Right. I sang whatever it was. And then James came down to the front of the stage and had... Gave me some direction to improvise the song in some crazy way, like you're a chicken, like you're or... a, you're a singer in the Catskills whose regular pianist is off that night, <laughs> and you're I don't know something crazy oh my God. that was completely inappropriate for the song, and I was so freaked out because I was very, I was still you were young, I, I was young, I was still suffering from my shyness about auditioning, and I certainly hadn't ever been asked to improvise in an audition before, and just the word improvise scared me. And I don't have any recollection of what I did. I seem to remember sitting on the edge of the stage and doing something. Judy. And then they said, thank you. And I left, and I thought, oh, my God, I am never going to work in this business. I am just terrible at it. I have no idea what I'm doing. Had to, you know, many years later, doing production of Passion that right. written by James Pine and Stephen Sondheim, so in which they love. loved me and have asked you, me to do it a second time. Have you did and you I hope, ever share that with them? No, and mm-hmm. I hope that they don't ever don't remember that.
0: Well, clearly they don't remember that because not only uh, have you worked. Numerous times with them in performance on stage. You've recorded Sondheim's music on your CD so magnificently. You have three CDs that I can think of off the top of my head. Just in Time, All This Happiness, and most recently, the beautiful Rogers and Rogers and Gettle CD that you put out. Before we say goodbye, would you be willing to sing even just a little something from that beautiful, beautiful collection of songs for us?
1: Yes. And then we all know what happens next. (laughs) If
0: I was not totally in love with you before, (laughs) I am beyond in love with you now. I love you too. can't believe I got to spend this time with you and thank you for sharing your stories with us. Thank you Uh, for having me. Clouds can make the wind Hey, I'm Alana Levine. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget to rate and review our show in the iTunes show page. Little Known Facts is recorded at The Hanger Studios in New
1: York City. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast.